0: This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 44. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. You're listening to Session 44, brought to you by our friends over at Gearslets.com, Audio Technica, and Universal Audio. Yeah, that's a new one. I'll tell you all about it. Very excited to have UA on board. Got a great show as usual. Mr. Eli Cruz is coming up shortly. Uh you may know his writing over at Tape Op magazine. He's done several reviews, several articles, and maybe you know him from his audio work. He of course is uh or was the original owner of New Improve or one of the original owners of New Improve recording in Oakland, California. And now he is a part owner because he made a move to uh, Brooklyn, New York. He, of course, works out of Figure 8 Recording in Prospect Heights, so maybe you're familiar with that studio. Uh, he's done a lot of work with a lot of different people, Tune Yarns, Questlove, Yoko Ono, Lord, Yola Tango, Lori Anderson, Mato, a, a lot of cool folks, Deer Hoof, uh, Fred Frith, uh, Mike Watt. Nels Klein, of course. Big list, big list. And you could check that out at elicruz.com. That's E-L-I-C-R-E-W-S.com. Eli Cruz coming up here. Very excited. Oh, man, I feel like I'm out of breath. I just got my coffee. I just walked in the door from dropping the kids off at school, and I feel like, ah, oh, now I can relax. And I know the dog just finished eating his food, and he, any moment he's going to be barking to tell me he needs to go out the front door, and I'll have to get up and stop recording and go do that. Oh, but it feels good to just sit down and, and talk with you all. It's very, very cool. Uh, want to give a, of course, a a shout out to loyal, loyal WCA listener, Travis Hill. Travis, I bet you're working out at the gym right now, listening to the show. So this is my subliminal message to you. Go, Travis. So there you go. Not so subliminal, but uh, anyways. All right. So let me tell you about this universal audio thing that's happening or happened. God, where do I begin? Uh, Well, first of all, I'm super excited to have them on board. Um, My history with their products and my history with their people uh, goes back pretty far. Let's start with the products. First of all, um, before U82, before U81, long ago, uh, they were developing plugins for the TDM environment for Pro Tools. So this is, you know, when I use the word TDMs, those of you who have been using Pro Tools for a long time, as long as I have or or longer, know that when I say TDM, you know, like, you know, we're talking older Pro Tools systems. Anyways, they used to do this four-pack, 1176 LA-2A, Pultec, RealVerb Pro. Yeah, I think that was it. Yeah. And what happened was, is uh, my introduction to the whole thing started with me going, oh, I'm using the Bomb Factory 1176. Oh, there's this Universal Audio Company, you know, and this Bill Putnam type heritage going on. I wonder what their eleven seventy-six plug-in sounds like compared to the Bond Factory. And it was, you know, that was kind of an eye-opening or ear-opening moment for me where I was like, oh wow, this is this is a little different. This is I like this. So I started using those plugins and using them on everything because I really love those sounds. I love love those boxes. And and to use it as a plug-in at that time, I was like, wow, this is great. I mean, you know, I can have this sound in multiples and I don't have to go out and You know, go broke buying an army of of 1176s and le 2 as and Pultex because I certainly couldn't afford it at that time. Uh, And I can't now. But um, so I I was using those and then their relationship with DigiDesign changed. So the development stopped. And in order for me to move forward with my Pro Tools rig at the time, I was going to have to lose the ability to use those plugins. And I was not very happy about that. So I think my uh, my introduction to the UAD1 card, which fo- uh, followed the whole TDM, you know, development and then moving on to the UAD1 card, I think not only did the relationship start with with the personnel there, but also the introduction to that whole UAD, UAD concept. And I think it started uh, with me complaining to will shanks and at that time will shanks uh was not a, a good friend of mine he was just this guy who worked there who i'd met and i was like oh yeah i love your products but man this kind of sucks i really want to take them with me in my next iteration of my pro tools rig and he was like oh you should try the u81 card and that of course really opened up a lot of uh possibilities and exposed me to that whole bringing in another company's um DSP into that digi environment at that time. And that was like, to me, that was a foreign concept and I believe that many other people it was too, because I got into it so much and really uh, the process for incorporating that was not as smooth as it is today. And so it took a little configuring and a little, you know, there was a wrapper, there was like a, a VST wrapper that was involved and it was, it was complex, And I remember Cutting Edge Audio Group, a pro audio company in San Francisco, they would send their customers who wanted to do that to me. So I'd get these phone calls. Hey, the guys at Cutting Edge said, you know how to incorporate UAD1 into the TDM environment. And so I would walk people through that. So I became very, you know, intimately uh, connected to that process and how to do that. And, you know, slowly but surely, you know, Will and I became friends and started to meet other people over there. And then uh, at some point, I became a UA artist, and I think that that happened, I want to say that that happened shortly before U82 came out. But anyways, in full disclosure, I am a UA artist to this day, and um, you might see me in videos, or you might see me in brochures, or at least the old brochures you did. I don't think you see me in the new one. So yeah, so that relationship really started to develop and their products really were coming along. I mean, they had the, uh, obviously they had the hardware products for many, many years. I mean, obviously, you know, Bill Putnam had had those products years ago. So these were just the new versions. But what to me was groundbreaking was their, their plugins, how good they sounded. And this, you know, this third party DSP thing, having been, you know, in kind of what we'll call the establishment of DAWs of being in pro tools and being, you know, you fit within a, a certain parameter. It's got to be like this. And their thing kind of like brought in a third party concept that was really attractive to me. So UAD2 was announced. Uh, we did a, uh, I had broken radio studios at the time and with, um, uh, universal audio, we did a, we'll call it, I hate to call it this, but we, it was a, it was essentially, it was like a rockumentary. It was like me and Mike Winger, who's been on the show. He's now the executive director of the recording Academy in San Francisco. Uh, Mike Winger and I got this band cannons and clouds. And there's this video out there. You can still see it today. And I'm uh, tracking the band through a bunch of UA gear. Uh, in fact, uh, my studio was chock full of UA gear, courtesy of Will Shanks. He totally helped me out in, in the beginning of this studio which was really helpful. And so we did this we did this video, we did this documentary and I mixed in I think it was Cubase or Nuendo at the time. Yeah, that's right. I think it was Cubase. So anyways, we mixed so I mixed this song in Cubase and you know, it was my first time to be able to really like use a ton of these plugins because they were way more powerful than the UAD 1 cards I had. And it was it was pretty sweet and it really kind of cemented my my belief in them. Uh, because they just kept hiring smarter people uh, by the boatload, and some cool uh, people that worked over at Digi eventually started to come over. Lev Perry, of course, came came on board, and man, talk about a super smart dude, very very talented guy. So yeah, so I had so at that point I was a UAD artist. I was you know utilizing their products like crazy, and then. I was very fortunate, as I'm sure many, many, uh, engineers who were, uh, uh, were as well to get an early glimpse of what the Apollo was going to be like. They came and they over to my studio and they brought these drawings and, you know, had us sign non-disclosure agreements. And they said, this is, we're working on this box and it's going to do this and it's going to do that. And you know, I was like, oh yeah, you gotta, you gotta make sure you have at least quad power in there. And, you know, I would love to see this and they showed me some drawings and I picked out the ones that I thought aesthetically looked, you know, the best. And we talked about features. And then of course the Apollo came out and that's, that's what that turned out to be. You know, that took the time from seeing those drawings to it actually becoming reality was quite a stretch, but Man, when it came out, I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is the thing that they've been talking about and was all hush-hush about. And so as a result, I have an Apollo. I've been using it since it came out. And it's, you know, it's for my workflow, uh, works fantastic for me. And I know many, many, many people are fans of it. So, you know, the hardware, of course, of UA is is everywhere. Uh, we're talking the analog stuff, you know, the 1176s and, and the, the 2610s and, you know, the mic pres, uh, they've, they've had various mic pres over the years. And uh, of course the, you know, the standard compressors, 1176 and LE2A, but uh, you know, my workflow has always, not always, but my workflow kind of more, my workflow morphed into an in the box workflow. And so from the perspective of of just the digital products from universal audio alone those products really speak to me i like how they work i like the interfaces i like how they sound and and that's and that's not even talking about the plugins i think it's i'm i'm not going to say that everybody agrees cuz uh, nobody ever everybody doesn't always agree that's just impossible and I'm certainly not going to sit here and say that, you know, they make the the best plugins of anybody, period, and you should use no other plugins. I think that would be disingenuous because I know, and I think you all would agree, that there are many great plugin manufacturers out there. But Universal Audio is definitely one of those companies that makes some absolutely stunning plugins and recreations of analog gear that I certainly cannot afford to buy and that work with my in-the-box workflow, you know, hands down. I mean, I just, I think they are one of the top companies in Pro Audio uh, for many of us at this moment. Now, if you don't use their products and their workflow or whatever, something about them doesn't work for you, that's fine. But for me and many people I know, their stuff is fantastic, and I, I'm a big fan of it. Call me a fanboy, but anytime they, you know, they make an announcement, I'm just like, oh, oh, cool, you know, very excited. And yeah, so they're here, they're on board, and like I say, I'm I'm very fond of the people that work there. I think they're smart, they're nice people, and they make a fantastic set of products. and you know it's exciting to see everything they come out with i think they're one of the one of the most exciting pro audio companies out there right now so so there it is universal audio is is here with us and um very excited to tell you about stuff that they have coming up they've got some some stuff happening in the future that we'll talk about and um i'm just super excited about it so universal audio working class audio it's a that's a great to me that's a, a perfect alignment of uh you know the spirit of, of where my show is so hope you enjoy it and uh yeah welcome UA. All right well let's get into our interview here with Mr. Eli Cruz here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Well welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Of all the people uh, out there to interview you truly uh are in the trenches and have been for for quite some time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: i guess i'm trying to figure out exactly what that means i feel like that is a true statement but i'm not quite sure what that means um being in the trenches of the audio um world as and what it's in opposition to because i don't know anything else you know
0: well you know i mean and you you also you diversify a lot from what i know of you i mean it's like you know you do writing for tape op actually i'm late on a review as we speak and usually
1: as i'm speaking i'm late on some review
0: (laughs) Yeah, you do that, you you play, you record. I think what we should do is probably step back a bit and just, sure. I'm trying to remember, I can't even remember how we met. I think it was through
1: Craig Schumacher at uh, Rudy's Can't Fail Cafe in, in Emeryville. Uh, he was in town for, I can't remember, it was, it was one of those uh, tape-op conferences that he was organizing, and he was in town doing reconnaissance work for it or something. And and he introduced us. I remember we met for lunch, and uh, yeah, I think that was the first time I met you. I, we, I'd seen your name about around a bunch, and our studios were like a mile apart, if that, and in in Emeryville at the time, I think. And Kevin Weber, um, Kevin Weber was I had met him a few times, and uh, I knew he worked out of the same space that you were working out of, or took it over from you, or uh, yeah, yeah. So um, I think I knew your name through him, but I. That, I remember the first time I met you was through Craig Schumacher.
0: Yeah, I think he yeah, I think he came to town and stayed with me actually on that trip. And it was it was right before maybe
1: the first uh time I was uh, involved in the conference and like went out and uh did a bunch of panel stuff. It might may, maybe it was even that meeting that I you know, Craig was like, "Hey, you should come be on our panels and do do tape up stuff with us, you know." Um so yeah, that was god what year was that maybe 2008 2009 something like that it could have yeah. been earlier than that yeah who knows
0: so we met we met some time ago and uh, when i met you you had new improved recording in, in technically in emeryville right it's actually technically in oakland okay uh,
1: and i think i made it make a snarky remark about that on the website that uh, even though mapping software puts us squarely in emeryville that's a dirty lie uh, <laughs> and you know um, not that i'm care that much about geography but uh it is actually in oakland and i do identify with oakland to some degree it's um it's the second city i lived in in the bay area after i moved to san francisco so i felt a an allegiance to the city of oakland i ended up living in berkeley for 13 years which was i don't recommend to anyone um (laughs) and we're about four blocks away from oakland and i always kind of wished we were four blocks south although you know the school district was uh preferable on our side of the border i guess but
0: yeah that's always a factor yeah but uh you know there's 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 an oakland cred i guess but whatever so you had new improved now just to kind of fast forward a bit new improved is actually still like you still have a hand in it right but the pelicci brothers are yeah so how that worked and- is when i when i'm i i moved to brooklyn about three years ago
1: um and i can explain that whole situation um whenever we Deemed appropriate. But so when I left town, when I left Oakland, um, uh, my, I had, I had a studio partner named John Finkbeiner and we had started the studio together in 2003. And so I was leaving about nine, nine and a half years later. And he actually ran it, um, alone for about a year and a half or so. And, um, and it was doing fine and he was busy and doing a lot of work and he, he does kind of, I would say kind of a little bit niche work. Uh, he's very involved in the jazz community and jazz and improv and creative music and whatever, whatever people want to call that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of his clientele base. And it was, it was doing well under the, in that, in that world, but um, there was not much like rock music coming in, not much, um, you know, of rep, what represents, I think the, you know, the, the best, the rest of the Bay area really represents music wise. And the Pellici brothers who were both house engineers at tiny telephone right around that time, uh, so we're talking about a, about a year and a half ago. We're interested in not stopping working at Tiny Telephone because actually they st- continue to work there to this day. But to just have have more of their own space that they can work in, so it's made sense for them to come and join forces with us. And so we sold half half of the business to them. They're half owners. You know, we are each a quarter owner. The four of us together. Um, so I continue to be an owner of that studio. And actually, in fact. Um, in about two weeks, I'm going to be coming out and spending a month in Oakland working at New Improved. So I have the benefit of having a place to work that, um, when I have sessions that for one reason or another make more sense to do in the Bay Area. Hmm.
0: That's an interesting complex over there because not only is New Improved there, but FM Recorders is there. Tell, tell us a little bit of history about that place. So FM stands,
1: stands for, uh, Foster McElroy and those guys, Denny and Tommy, um, they were, They built the building, they built the building out as studio space, I want to say in the 90s, it was after the success that they had through En Vogue and Tony, 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 they were, they produced Funky Divas, which, uh, you know, for a lot of people my age, early 40s was a pretty big deal, even if you weren't paying attention to contemporary R&B when it came out in the early 90s and so with that money they built this built the space out um our studio that we moved ended up moving into it new improved was kind of their starter studio while they were building fm recorders down the hall so it was already soundproofed and uh we did a lot of work afterwards but it was already built to be a, a studio with a control room and had a had a mixing desk in it and everything uh which we ended up we took out we moved in and then we ended up buying back off of them and moving it back in that's a that was a long story but um so yeah, so the building itself had a rich history of Oakland recording, which was exciting for us to move into a space with that kind of history in the walls and everything. Uh, Tommy McElroy still makes music and sometimes out of that building. He is not involved in the studio stuff day to day there. Um, this other guy, Carl Wheeler has kind of taken that over. So FM has really become uh, kind of Carl's room and he does a lot of gospel and R&B and um, it's really, he's he's an awesome engineer and it's cool to have him in the building. He's a great positive force, and everyone in the building is just awesome. And then what you were probably going to say next is uh, so John Vanderslice is putting Tiny Telephone East, or whatever he's going to call it, Tiny Telephone Oakland, into the garage space in the building. Now, this is a space I had had my eyes on for years as a potential place for New Improve to kind of expand into or grow into huge, huge, you know, huge um, garage space with very high ceilings, build out a big live room and all that, and I just never got the gumption together to do it before I left town. So right when I left town, Vanderslice was talking about building a space in Oakland. And I said, hey, you know, you should consider doing it in in the same building that we're in. We have an excellent relationship with our landlord. Very, very studio friendly. He runs, you know, he owns a studio himself. He's been in the business for many years. He's very accommodating and a really cool guy. Also, you know, Vanderslice got in touch with him and uh, it worked out and he's, he." took over the lease and is moving into the space and is like well on his way right now as we speak to uh, having
0: that studio, you know, exist. So Vanderslice moving into that building, what's going to be interesting. And I'm, I want to get your take on this is, so you're, you're going to have new and improved. Yeah. You're going to have FM Mm -hmm. and you're going to have the new tiny telephone, three studios in the same building, yeah, all with kind of slightly different clientele.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap between new, improved, and Tiny Telephone. I mean, I was, I guess I was considered a house engineer at Tiny Telephone for many years, even though I only only did a few sessions there a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Polichis, you know, were the house engineers for eight years or so, and still do sessions there. So all three of us, uh, and John Finkbeiner as well, I'll have a great relationship with John Vanderslice, you know, huge amount of mutual respect both ways. And there, like I said, there is some overlap in terms of the clientele. And I see that as a positive. I see that people will be able to come into the building, start a record in one studio, move to the other, move back and forth, almost like a, not a, not an A room, B room in terms of a hierarchical thing. Although, you know, he, he will have a larger space and a larger desk and larger Neve than we, than we have there so there will be a a room b room kind of mentality to some degree of course they're separate businesses so you know but we're we're all we're all friends and it's it's all gonna work out i have full faith that uh you know people are like you're crazy for inviting inviting this other studio into the building you know or you know setting up the gears in motion to make this thing happen and for me it's all it's just positive it's bringing more more to the space it's it's uh, more of a i guess it's uh, the operating from a place of bounty rather than a place of uh, uh, what's the opposite of bounty on bounty um, uh, <laughs> lacking, you know, just thinking of like, Oh, if, if we, if we bring bands to this space, it will benefit everyone.
0: Well, and I certainly am not comparing John or tiny telephone to Starbucks, but <laughs> it, it, to make an analogy, they, there are st- studies have shown that when a Starbucks moves into a neighborhood with a mom and pop coffee shop, it's inevitable that the business for the mom and pop coffee shop picks up. Yeah. Because of not only because sometimes lines can be overwhelming at a Starbucks, but also you generally have people enter into a neighborhood like that and then say, Well, well, let's go give our business to the mom and pop. Yeah. And there'll definitely be some I mean, there's like the idea of runoff, you know, of like, okay,
1: uh people want to come to a session at Tiny and it's booked and hey, we're right next door and it's easy. Um, there's definitely some of that, but it's, I think I'm thinking of it more as, you know, we, we have a very healthy business there improved. That's been there for at this point, 12 years. And when the bleachers came in, it just got revitalized even more. And uh, I'm not, I, there's never been really a really concern for me about like, there not being enough work. Uh, I mean, you know, on a day-to-day basis, sometimes there is of like, Oh shit, we better book next month. But, but like in the long run, I just feel like where we've made a lot of good work out of that space, and people know that, and that we have a good reputation in oakland and i just i'm not 'm not afraid of it and i I embrace it and i know
0: i I see yeah. it as a potential boon for all of you because yeah. it's this complex where you, it's a little bit of a throwback in some senses to bigger studios of the past where multiple rooms were running, and people were running into each other yeah so from that perspective I, I look at it as a, as a positive for all of you. That's great.
1: I I feel like I haven't been hearing that much from other engineers and people. Uh, I feel like I've, I've heard more of like, are you crazy? <laughs> and, um, for me, I, I think you're right. And, and what I, when I'm super interested in, uh, in their existing in that building is more of a sense of community that, um, now I feel like more like when a uh, tiny telephones B room went in, all of a sudden the kitchen there was, you know, you had two bands, working at the same time in two different rooms and you meet in the kitchen and, and be like, Oh, what, you know, you guys are playing tonight. Great. I'm going to come see you and have this, uh, kind of crossbreeding of, 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 um, people who wouldn't necessarily run into each other in these situations. And I'm, I'm really excited about that actually, even though I won't be around for most of it because I live 3000 miles away, but just when I am there working there for those guys, you know, it's, it's really going to be a net, net positive for everybody, I really think. And I, th- I think I think everybody involved feels that way or it wouldn't be happening.
0: Okay. So that's two podcasts in a row that the term net positive has been used. Eric Valentine just used it in uh, his episode and <laughs> you have just used it. So <laughs> net positive. That's there the catch word
1: of the day. It's the, yeah.
0: Today's podcast is brought to you by <laughs> the word net positive or the phrase net positive. So, all right. So that's cool. So let's talk about why you left the Bay Area and what you're doing now.
1: Yeah. So um, I think I, I, I left for two reasons. One was I was getting a little itchy. I had been, I'd lived in, I moved to San Francisco in 91. So I'd been in the Bay Area for 21 years. That was half my life at, or more than half my life at the time. And I really felt uh, I had been feeling this a little bit of a gnawing for a while to just be somewhere else. And I didn't know if that meant Boise or, you know, probably not L.A., but, you know, maybe L.A. or, yeah, probably not L.A. Uh, and then as I was kind of having these feelings, I did a session at my studio. This guy named Shazad Ismaili came in with uh, a group that Fred Frith had called uh, Kosa Brava we hit it off and he's a really cool guy and we started talking and i realized also he's the kind of guy that hits it off with everyone cuz he's very friendly and generous spirit and um he said i'm starting this studio in brooklyn and i would love it if you'd come be a part of it and i said i can't you're crazy i have a family and i live here and my studio's here and and then i really started thinking about it and then i the next time i was in town i was touring and i stopped by and he he showed me the space and it was raw space just like you know a building that he bought in brooklyn that hadn't even started construction, and I started seeing the potential of it, and started thinking about what it could really mean. And there was a there's a living space in the building where I'm sitting right now, uh, an apartment that my family can move into. And it just all of a sudden it just clicked, and it seemed like the right thing to do. And I moved out here in summer of 2012, and the studio was supposed to be being wrapped up and finished, being finished, and I was going to like help with the finishing touches. Well. <laughs> You know, I'm sure it's no shock to anyone uh, that a couple years behind schedule. So we opened up November of 2014 is when the studio, the we'll called Studio A, the upstairs studio opened up, and November 2014 was the first or the first sessions. So it took pl- two years plus after even I arrived here to, for the studio to open. But it's now open. It's called Figure Eight Recording. It's in Prospect Heights in Brooklyn. I love it. I love every day working in there. It's amazing. Um, we're working on the Studio B. The Basement studio. It's two separate spaces, two separate fully isolated studios, and I'm actually wiring that. I'm taking a break from that today to talk to you and getting you know some up to my elbows and multi pair and you know solder and everything. Uh, it's super fun. I enjoy that part of it too. So that'll probably be going by the end of the year. So by 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 beginning of 2016, we'll have you know both floors fully functional.
0: I'm sorry. Did you say you enjoyed soldering? And- I love soldering. Oh and my god.
1: I I you know you know why? I mean, I, for a lot of reasons. I don't love the fumes, but uh, I think some people do. Um, <laughs> I I love the monotony. I love the roteness. And I love being able to listen to other things when I'm working. When you're working on music all day, that's what you're listening to. And now I can listen to a podcast. I can listen hey, to- Hey, I your, know a good podcast. Yeah, to, I, I yeah. can listen to your podcast. I can listen to uh, music that I'm not recording or mixing. <laughs> what a concept. I know, which I don't
0: get enough of a chance to do, as I think all of us, you know, well in the time period of 20 between 2012 and 2014 how are you making ends meet yeah um so I was
1: curious about that myself when I got here and I was like oh this, <laughs> stu- this studio is supposed to be open and luckily I had a few connections of people you know uh, that I'd met over the years some th- through the tape- op c- conferences and some through touring I did a bunch of touring with the Bantoon yards um, as their front of house person so I'd met a bunch of people that way and I just through those connections kind of cobbled together a, a network of studios that I could track in, record in. I did a bunch of sessions in people's living rooms. I set up a mix room in my apartment, um, which I was very happy to assemble about three or four months ago <laughs> and not work out of my apartment anymore. But so I had, you know, I, I, I cobbled it together, like in every sense of the word, um, uh, I continued to, to make my living as a recording and mix engineer. I just did it in a different way than I had ever really done. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, cause I'd always had a home base that I studio that i worked out of since i started
0: was this a tough transition for the family for you to leave california and go to new york you know my wife was very happy to do it um she
1: she's a writer and it's a new york is a good place for her to be she'd lived in the bay area all all her life so she she was ready to leave by the time we left you know nothing's permanent i'm i feel like i'm here for a while i'm here to i feel like i'm here to stay but you never know i mean who knows uh, my son was ten at the time. It was a little tricky for him school wise that was mm-hmm. definitely a, a tr- tough transition. I think it's turned out well you know and three years later he's happy here and he's excited about going to high school and all that kind of stuff but that took a while you know, but that was gonna be the case i mean that was that was collateral damage or whatever you call it. I just you know i mm-hmm. you know it's i'm i'm I changed states when I was nine and it was tough for a year or
0: two, and then I got over it and
1: I think that's what happens, you know?
0: So you get there, the studio's not ready. Was there a little bit of panic? There was never panic. There was
1: definitely impatience um, because the, the process of building the studio was delayed by forces outside of our control, which namely the city of New York, the building codes and the uh, DOB and, the, and especially landmarks. So anyone who's trying to build a studio in a landmarked neighborhood... Good luck. Uh, you're just going to hit a lot of delays and a lot of uh, extra expenses and red tape. Um, just you know, if you want to change anything about the exterior of the building, it's going to take a long time. And we did. We wanted to change the ugly storefront, and we and we extended the building 20 feet out back. Um, that was a huge, you know, obviously a huge thing with landmarks and DOB and all that. But it gave us enough space to have two studios in the building, and otherwise we, it would only be one. So it was worth worth the two year wait for that. Um, so yeah, so it was, a little, it was a little frustrating, but I was never panicked about it because I knew it was gonna happen. The people involved, Shahzad Ismaili, the owner, and Phil Weinrobe was kind of managing the whole project. He's an
0: engineer here too. We, it was just gonna happen. We all knew it was gonna happen. And you've spent plenty of time in California, so you can certainly speak on this. What's culturally, what do you notice is the biggest differences, not only between the two states, but also in the recording world?
1: Hmm. That's a, that's a good question. I think I need to think about that for a second. Um, you know, I grew up with my mom and my grandfather and they were both from New York. So coming here culturally from me felt a little bit like coming home, even though I had never lived here as a child, the people, the, the kind of, um, the feeling in the air when you walk around here is something that feels very familiar to me. And, you know, I spent a fair amount of time here over the years touring and all that. So I didn't feel any culture shock in terms of the type of people here, you know, like the living here and the energy and the vibe in the recording world. I think it, it is different for sure. And it's different than the Bay area because there. in the Bay area. I, I have to come up with a way of saying this. that doesn't sound like being condescending towards the Bay area because I love it there. And I loved recording there and I loved being involved in the music scene there. But there is a sense of, of kind of professionalism here that I don't think is quite as, as tangible there. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean, and I, by that, I don't mean commercialism, by the way. I don't mean, I mean, there is that too, but I don't mean that you're going to work with Beyonce if you live in New York. I don't mean that. I mean that like bands coming in to work here tend to have, I guess maybe there's a slight bit more ambition, um, a slight, slight bit more importance on it. And I'm completely generalizing. Of course, there are bands in the Bay Area that have that and there are bands here that don't, but I just feel like it's a little bit shifted towards they're, you know, bands here feel like they they actually have the possibility of making it, whatever that means to them. I, and that doesn't mean, you know, huge commercial success. That means, like, being a successful touring band that can pay their rent by playing music, you know? Mm-hmm. And I feel like that, that feeling is a lot less prevalent in the Bay Area of, like, this thing that I'm working on could actually be my, you know, become... Something that provides my living, and you know, to some people that can have a dra- that can be there can be drawbacks to that. I mean, I think that the, that there's a spirit of kind of adventure in the Bay Area that maybe is a little bit less here because there because of that professionalism. Mm-hmm. So I don't. That's why I'm, it's not a condescending thing towards the Bay Area because there's actually some positives to the Bay, Area, Bay Area's approach to like, hey, we're we're here having having a really fun time in the studio and making cool art, you know, and I feel like that does exist here too, but it's not, it's, there's a little bit more of, you know, a bunch of people might hear this and how's this gonna, what's this gonna, how are we going to think about that ahead of time before we put this out in the world, you know?
0: Yeah. And I'm just wondering what other factors outside of, outside of the music and studio world uh, have an effect on bands in the different geographic areas. Yeah. Um, You know, in New York, obviously, I mean, speaking specifically of Manhattan, I mean, spaces. Space is limited, um, yeah. so I would assume that the there's not a lot of home studio action going on. Whereas, in the Bay Area, uh, space is expensive, but spaces tend not to be so small. So my assumption out of all that was that you know in New York or in the New York area, people tend to you know visit studios more often, and when they do, they have their shit together.
1: Yeah, I think there's some of that. It's also you know, it's, it's more expensive to come into a studio here. Like, even though I feel like we are very affordable for, for, for a New York studio, I have to put that in there, you know, because you know, if, if this studio were in Denton, Texas, you know, it would be expensive, really, really expensive. And I think for, for, but for New York prices, when you're compared to Avatar, which unfortunately I think is now going out of business, but you know, when you're next to Avatar and, um, germano and all these really really expensive studios you know um electric lady studios and you know these places that are multi-thousand dollars a day you can look cheap but it's still a chunk of money to come into uh, even you know what i consider be an affordable studio here so so there's that too uh um, what do you charge what, what's this what does it cost so coming into the studio the the room rate is four hundred dollars a day um for the upstairs studio and depending on who you use as an engineer, if you use me, it's, I'm 500. So it's 900 a day, um, to come into a studio, which when I'm, when I worked in Oakland, I was charging half that they're not, you know, I was, it was like five, five fifty for both me and the room. So it's, it's expensive. It's, it's a good deal more expensive per day. Um, for sure.
0: Yeah. Wow. Uh, I mean that I, I don't look, I don't look at that and think, that's crazy, yeah. But I would say, I would agree if you were in Denton, Texas. Hello, Denton, Texas. Hi, Denton. Yeah, cheaper, or, or definitely, certainly out uh, out of this world for Denton, Texas. But for New York, that just doesn't seem outlandish. I don't think it is. I think it's
1: I think it's affordable, and I think that we're, you know, we're new and we're finding our our place in the market. This brings me back to something that I learned from John Vanderslice a long time ago. I, I've learned a lot of things from John, and one is be transparent about your about your pricing, you know, it shouldn't be a secret. Yeah. So we try not to fuck around we, with that because I think that that's, um, you know, again, I'm quoting JV here, but I feel like you alienate bands when you have different pricing for different people. That's not to say you can't make a deal every now and then, of course, mm-hmm. it, for whatever reason you're slow that month or you're, it's your buddy or whatever. I mean, there there are reasons to give discounts. I'm not saying that you never do, but you just, I think you need a, a an advertised rate and that's your rate. And then it's rare that people try to talk me down from my rate because that's, they just know that that's what I charge. Even if they are my friends or I've done six records with them or whatever, it's just like, it's just the professional way to deal with it. It's like, here, here's what I charge. If, if it's too much, we can talk about it. I'm not, I'm not saying I won't talk about it, but it's just that it's, um, it's more transparent that way. I really, I really dislike the culture of email us and we'll talk about, <laughs> your, uh, uh, you know, what's your budget. I don't, I I just think, you know, if here's our rate and if it's in your budget, then contact me, you know, and if it's just outside your budget, then we'll, we'll talk. But it's like, if it's, if your budget is half of what I charge, I'm sorry, you know, we're probably not going to work together.
0: (laughs) Right. Imagine if you went to a restaurant and they did that.
1: Yeah. And I have, you know, I've, I've gone out and found bands that I wanted to work with that didn't have any money and got them great deals. And I'll do that every now and then once or twice a year, if that, but, you know, and if, if I'm really slow that month or whatever, but, you know, there are ways of that. We all have to cope with, with what happens when the bands aren't coming and aren't calling. But I just, I feel like establishing a, a that transparency up front is very important. And I credit John Vendorslice for,
0: for helping me realize that early on, like, well, yeah, I mean, you can, I mean, John's been in business for it's, he's going on like twenty years. It's, now, com, right? it's coming up, I think. Yeah, I think
1: I, I think it was seventeen last year or something like that. But yeah, it's, yeah. Pheno- it's phenomenal. It's like he's, um, yeah, you know, he's. He, there, there's a lot of things to take to learn from him, and he's very generous with his um, advice on how to run things. When when I was starting a studio in two thousand three. You know, I had only known him for two years or something at that point, and we become friends. and And I picked his brain constantly. He probably got sick of me calling him, but he was <laughs> he never showed it. You know, he was always like really, really sweet and really generous with his advice. And you know, because he ha- he can afford to be because he knows that you know not everybody that he gives advice to is going to succeed. It's like with these recording workshops and recording, you know, mix with the masters and all this stuff. It's like it's cool. Not not, not all those guys are you know going to put Manny American out of business. You know, maybe in that group one of them will go on to actually do mixing for a career but, i think that's fair to say i mean yeah um but it's you know th- you can af- you can afford to be generous with your knowledge and your advice um because you know when it comes down to it if somebody's really gonna put the energy in and do it they deserve it if they're if they're gonna if they're gonna do all the work it takes you know when people say how can i do this i say you have to do it you have to do it for years and years and years how do, how do i learn how to mix you have you know like can show you a trick here and there, but really you have to do it for years and years and years. And that's, it's no threat to me to tell somebody that, Yeah, you know, it's no threat to my business and my, my career to have other people working hard to do well at what they do.
0: You know, I I wholeheartedly agree with that, that philosophy in general. I think that those who try to safeguard and be overly protective, there's bigger things going on in their life that they potentially could be threatened in the future by that kind of, you know, overprotective, I'm not going to tell you, really? Are you doing something so mystical that none of us know (laughs) that we can't figure it out by talking to somebody else? Right.
1: Well, talking about that and talking about, I was thinking um, about this idea of advice and, and, you know, teaching and, and all this stuff, you know, I mean, we all have anyone who, Anyone who sits at a desk with people behind them has had these questions, you know, of like, how do I do what you're doing? How do, how do I become what you're, you know, I want, I'm, I'm a musician and I want to become an engineer. What do I do? And, you know, it's, it's really interesting to think of, to try to break it down and to how can I tell someone how to do this? And you can't, it's a million little things. On the other side, we all have those moments where we're like, oh, I see how Oz Fritz is doing that. I'm looking over his shoulder and watching him mix and, Oh, okay, I'm going to try that. And we all have those moments too. So that there are specific things that sometimes you can say like, I'm going to try that next time. And, and, and then it yields good results. So you do it again, but a, I mix things up a lot. No pun intended there. I I change the way I do things a lot. So, you know, I almost never use the same mics for overheads. You know, if you for, for more than a few sessions in a row, I, I, I get bored and I want to hear different mics in those positions and I want to hear those mics in different positions. And so it's, it's really hard for me sometimes to like show somebody how how to do something because for me, it's all about exploration. So what I can show them is try things, try things differently every time and, and know when it's not working and you have to, you will sometimes have to go to your fallbacks. You're like, okay, I know that the the Coles pair in this these positions will sound good, and I'm just going to use that today because, you know, the other thing that I thought I, I thought would sound cool it just doesn't today. And mix moves, you know, a mix mixing, you know, when you're mixing, it's like it's a it's a million tiny moves that makes a mix. So just saying like, put the bass through the LA2A, it doesn't, it's not going to make the mix, you know, substantially better or worse just on that one one thing. So how do you teach someone the millions of little decisions you have to make? And it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, uh, you know, we're all still learning it. I feel like I'm still learning those things 15 years into my career, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Um, I feel the, uh, when somebody says, how do I, how do I do that? I just say, you just go do it. You assume yeah. the role and you jump in with both feet and start fucking shit up. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I never did the, uh, I didn't come up through the intern path.
1: Um, so it's tricky for me to show interns how to do things because I wasn't in that position. And I, I think that is a benefit of that system, is it in some ways being an intern will probably teach you how to how to show other interns how to do things <laughs> better, you know, when you're when you're in that position. Because I got interested in recording, you know, as a lot of people did being in bands and I did a quasi-internship with Miles Boyson, who I know you've had on your uh podcast mm-hmm. before. And, you know, I say quasi because I took a workshop with him and discovered, you know, I was, I was super impressed by how he worked and and the results he got in his space. And you've been there and it's very humble space. And he uses a lot of amazing gear and a lot of very humble gear. And somehow with all that cobbles together these incredible recordings and so it's it it was like oh he is really good at this and I want to learn from him how to do this, and I realized quickly that like it's so much more than that. I could get little things from him here and there, but the only way for me to learn personally was to go and do it myself. So I never did the I never interned at a big studio or anything. I sat in with him half dozen times and then started my own studio. Um,
0: yeah, I don't want to you know take away from the the intern type, you know, coming up through the system. I did because I, I didn't do it either. But yeah. um, I will say that I think that there's value in I, I prefer the term. I, I prefer like the, the mentoring. Yeah. Spending time and hanging out with somebody I think is important in introducing them to people and, you know, d- just a constant conversation because there there's a there's a million ways to learn. Yeah. But I think that for me, I like I like bringing smart people along and saying all right cool you're smart you kind of you get the bigger picture here let me let me kind of let's have kind of a a a reciprocal relationship you know you can help me out to do some stuff I'll show you some stuff I'll introduce you to some people um yeah I think what's really always tricky and I don't know how you feel about this but it seems inevitable that when you're in a position where you have been paid to record people for a number of years, you tend to attract a lot of people that want to come on board and not everybody's suited for it. There's a lot of ambitious people out there and I get a lot of crazy emails, some not very well thought out and, uh, but occasionally, you know, you see one, you're like, hmm, yeah. this one could be good. Let me, let me reach out. But it's tough. It is
1: tough. I mean, in all the years that I've had exactly that experience of getting contacted by a lot of people and having a lot of bands on the couch behind me say, hey, I'm interested in that. And then, you know, it's like, great. Um, and you kind of give them some instructions for how to follow through with that. And, you know, 1% of them do. Mm-hmm. and. So in all the years, I have I think I've had exactly two people where that really kind of worked out, where, where they were, you know, started as whatever you want to call it, a, a interns or assistants, you know, unpaid positions where they were basically learning in exchange for helping me and helping me set up mics and do all that kind of stuff. Out of all the people that have done that, only two I feel like really were self-directed and self-directed enough to make it work and make it more of a benefit for me than a, than a drawback. Like mm-hmm. having somebody who's not really self-directed helping you is not a, actually a help at all. Cause you end up having to redo whatever that they, they did and it takes twice as long. So if you have somebody really clever and self-directed working with you, it's an, it's a benefit for both of you. And yeah, it's rare. It's really hard to find. And luckily I'm in that position right now with this, um, there's a woman interning here at the studio named Lily. And she's just uh, really, she's headed in the right direction. That's all I'll say. She's like doing everything right to become a, a great engineer. And I, I can see that happening in the next few years.
0: It's interesting too. I feel like um, you have to have like, to bring somebody into a studio session with you, you just got to click with them. Yeah, And there just has to be that kind of, oh, okay, you got it. You're going to get the drum mics. Okay, great. I'll be in here, you know, doing the patch bay. Awesome. You got it. And then you go and check the work and it's like, for the most part pretty good. You just maybe have to make make a couple of adjustments, but that whole, if you like, if that, if you don't have that and you, you constantly have to like, no, 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 no. You set the mic stand up like this. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And you know, the first day (laughs) you do. And then sometimes you let that relationship uh go for a while thinking like, oh, okay, I'm gonna let them give them a chance to learn and give them a chance to kind of get better at doing this. And uh, you know, the the thing that doesn't get better is just the the vibe you have with them, you know.
0: What do you think? I mean, we have a ton of students that listen to the show. And you know, I mean, a large percentage of them wanna do this. So not podcasting, but yeah. <laughs> Well now they do <laughs> now they do, yeah. Um No, out of all seriousness, I mean, a lot of them want to do it. So what do you think are like just the common cliches that so many of them repeat? I could think of numerous ones, but I'm curious, what are some of the crazy shit things that you've run into with people, the crazy things that people do that not just crazy, but what are the things that make people not the right candidate?
1: I mean, you know, some of it's just simple stuff that would be that would kind of disqualify you for any job. You know, being late, not showing up when you say you're going to show up, showing up stinky. Uh, you know, um, that's a bad one. You know, the 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 main one that everyone everyone and I listened to the Andrew Shep's uh, podcast, which was great. You know, yeah, studio etiquette, talking, knowing when to talk and when not to talk, and 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 not just that who to talk to. I thought that was really cool. You know, I've thought about that a lot, but the way he laid it out was so clear. It was like, you know, if you have something to, that you think will benefit the session you take the, the, uh, engineer side and whisper it in their ear and then it's up to them if they, if they want to, you know, there's a chain of command. And I, I thought that was great. And I, I just want to reinforce that idea of like, you know, we're, I try to be, you know, I think I'm a nice guy, but, um, uh, <laughs> so, you know, I'm a pretty approachable, but if, if somebody does the wrong thing in the studio, I get, get not nice pretty quick. And it's because it's affecting my relationship with the band. It looks mm-hmm. bad. It looks bad. It makes me look bad in front of the band. If my assistant isn't, isn't functioning properly, isn't uh, performing the right way. So,
0: but and what Andrew was talking about was like, once you're in the door and I think my question, I think oh, pertains to like, even before they get in.
1: Oh, I get it. Um, Yeah. Again, I just think like it's basic, it's basic kind of human relationship skills and the things that, you know, go when you're going on any job interview, you know, we had a guy show up who has, actually would have turned into a, a fantastic intern in- assistant, um, but he needed to go get a job. Uh, unfortunately, because he was a great guy and he showed up in a suit and tie or like a tie and, you know, and it was awesome. It was, it was cute. It was like, you don't need to show up like that. You know, I'm in a t-shirt and ripped jeans, you know? And he showed up for his internship interview that way. And it was like, but it was, it was endearing. He, it also happened that he was a really super nice guy and really smart and good at soldering. And so he was basically immediately hired on the spot. But, but I just thought this, the suit thing was, or the tie thing was really funny and <laughs> not not that everybody should do that, but it's like, it was his personality. It was like, it fit him. And I guess that's what, you know, be yourself when you, in these situations, Unless being yourself is, is a problem, in which, <laughs> <laughs> in which case you know, you know, at the end of the day, what we do is it's a service job. It's a it's a people facing whatever you, whatever the lingo is. You know, it's people oriented service job in a lot of ways. Uh-huh. There, there's a technical component to it, but you know, a huge part of my everyday work is relating to people. And if you're good at that, if you're good at relating to people, then you have like half of this job down. So I guess my advice for people thinking about this as a career is, you know, look at yourself and, and I don't think that you can change it if you're not, if, if you're not a, if you're not an agreeable person that people want to be around, that's hard to change. I don't know how to tell somebody how to do that, but what I can tell you is if you think that you're not that person, find a different career.
0: Yeah. But there, and uh, there's also, I think like you touched a little bit on it, but like, there's so many, there's so many details and so many things that you know, and maybe for some some students coming up, maybe it's a product of how you were raised, you know. And for better or for worse, um, you know, you if you are chronically late, and you carry an attitude with you, and you don't think that you've got to, you know, as as Eric Valentine said, if you don't think you got to bring your A game, you just you should just step aside and let, let through the, those that have a passion for it and that are willing to get up early or, or be on, you know, set your alarm, be on time, take yeah. a shower. Don't, you know, you, uh, there's a, um, what's the term executive functioning, you know, executive functioning skills. It's like, okay, I, if, if you have an internship interview the next day, staying up late and getting totally trashed or smoking so much pot it's going to affect the next day yeah um that's lack of executive functioning skills absolutely and
1: you know um uh I taught you know we're talking about students and I I taught recording at expression in Emeryville for eight years uh so I I have a fair I I guess I I have a pretty good idea of like what you know students that age who want to get into this business kind of uh, you know are like you know as as a general kind of a slice of humanity. You, you said the word passion and you know it's funny because the slogan for expression incredibly cheesy. Um, you know, turn your passion into profession, uh, I think is their slogan or it used to be. And I thought the, I thought I always thought that was a super, super cheesy like catchphrase. but then I started think, really thinking about it and it's really what I did and what anyone who does this needs to do. And mm-hmm. it's, it's like, you, you have to have that passion there. If you're not, you have to either love music itself and just want to be around it constantly, mm-hmm. or you have to love the process of documenting music. You know, I don't even think you need to be a music fan to do this, honestly. I mean, I think a lot of people would argue with me, but I just think, I think you have to be a fan of the process of documenting it because that's really what we're doing. It's where mm-hmm. we're documenting performances. We're, we're making, you know, we're making recordings we're not making so many records anymore. Um, there are still records, but it's. I think of it more now as we're making making a recording because that recording could end up as a single on Bandcamp, or it could end up as a you know on in a film or in a video game or whatever. You know, we're making a recording um, that doesn't take any any of the importance out of it. It's shifted away, I think, from albums and records. But if you, if if the the process of doing that, of making that document, doesn't just absolutely thrill you, um, then you shouldn't do this. And so if you if you will do whatever it takes to put yourself in the position where you are allowed to and compensated for doing that all day, then then you're on the right path. And if you're not willing to, to make sacrifices to make that happen, forget it.
0: All right. I want to take a little break here from our discussion with Eli Cruz. And I want to talk to you about this uh, program where Audio-Technica is, of course, giving away a free pair of headphones when you buy one of the 40 series microphones. And you can get to the page to look it over by uh, going to workingclassaudio.com. There's a banner on the right-hand side, click on that, that'll take you over there. and. The deal is this. If you buy one of the 40 Series mics, you're going to get a free pair of ATH-M50X headphones, or as I like to say, the M50s for short. Um, This is a program that they're running until uh, December 31st of this year. So if you're thinking about buying a microphone and you want a free pair of headphones, obviously do it before the program ends. Now buying it before the end of the year, of course, uh, helps you in in with your taxes a little bit because you can write that microphone off on next year's taxes. So make sure you do that. You can uh, choose between. Looks like they've got they've got a good selection here. They've got the forty thirty three. They've got the uh, the forty seven MP and the forty seven SV. The forty fifty. The forty fifty ST the 4060, the 4080, the 4081. So large diaphragm condenser, some ribbon mics in that choice, uh, and of course, mono, large diaphragm condensers as well. So make sure you do that. That program, like I said, ends on the 31st. So once, you're, once you, of course, buy the mic, you want to come over to that link, and you want to register, and you'll follow the instructions and print out the rebate form and send it in and get your free headphones, which is cool. And I've mentioned before, we use those headphones, those M50s over at uh, SharkBite for tracking all the time. And then uh, I'm a huge fan of the 40, of, of the M40s here for uh, when I do the podcast, that's what I use. So um, really great headphones and uh, some good choices there on the 40 series mics which have been around for a long time and, and really well-built and sound really great in my opinion. So make sure you check those out. Make sure you do not miss out on that opportunity because that's a good deal. When you buy that, you want to make sure you get a copy of your original sales receipt with the store name, the date of purchase, the model number, the price paid to, to be uh, you know, eligible to make that work. And then you're going to need the original UPC barcode from the box. So you can send that in, or I think you either send it in or you copy it. You'll have to read the details there on the website, but it looks like you have to have uh, all of that put together with the appropriate postage, and that needs to be postmarked by, looks like, January 31st of 2016 in order for the rebate to be honored. So maybe you end up buying the mic, and then you get caught up in the holidays, and you forget about it. Just make sure that it's postmarked by the 31st. Now, of course, the purchase has to take place before December 31st. So Make sure you do that. And uh, that's it. So uh, be sure and check that out. Audio Technica, get your, get your free headphones there. And let's get back to our uh, discussion here with Eli Cruz here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Let me shift gears a, a slight bit. Um, how do you economically make this work? And what have you learned over the years to make it work?
1: I think probably one of the best pieces of advice I can give anyone um, is when you're starting out, to keep your overhead extremely low. So if you rack up a huge amount of debt by, you know, when you're starting your first studio, you're starting your first venture, um, that you have little chance of paying back unless you're like booked solid for, you know, the next 10 years, um, you're just setting yourself up for failure. Um, I think that what allowed me to nurture uh, um, uh, a recording studio in the Bay Area until it was had had enough success to kind of be sustainable uh, because we're getting enough clients in was just basically having spent very very little money up front you know and whatever money we, we spent was not on credit cards and not huge debts with huge um interest payments and so it allowed it gave me a cushion it gave me the luxury of not being great at what i did and not having a uh a large amount of clients right from the get-go. It Mm. it gave me a cushion to kind of learn on the job for the first, you know, few years. And that's not to say, I mean, I think I did some okay things those first few years, not everything I did sucked, but I wasn't certainly wasn't consistent. I certainly did a lot of things that weren't great in those first few years because I was learning and, and I was cheap enough. I was charging enough. Uh, you know, I, I was charging little enough that that was okay. Um, there wasn't a huge pressure on me to like be Jeff Emmerich. And, um, although oh, he's a bad example because he was fucking 19, but that, that I think it, it works economically if you don't get in over your head. So uh, keeping the overhead low, finding, finding a space that you can really afford finding, you know, starting out with cheap gear. You know, one thing I will say though, I, I listened to the, the Moss um podcast and I want to reinforce the idea. At some point you get to a place where you don't want to buy anything that you won't o- want to own for the rest of your life. And that, that resonated with me when he said that, because I, that's how I, I felt that click over at some point from being like, I just need to buy the Octava mics cause they're a hundred dollars at Guitar Center and they sound decent to like, if I don't want this for the, for the rest of my life, I'm not going to buy it right now, you know? But you know, for the first few years, I think you, you don't have that, you know, you, you're not in that position. You're thinking like, how can I make this work? You know, I hear a huge amount of recordings of people, people do, using extremely cheap gear that I think sound awesome. So I'm not in the camp. I mean, I believe me. I love my expensive, you know, microphones the, the microphones that I get to work with in the studio every day, and I wouldn't trade those, you know, for a bunch of cheap, you know, Chinese-made mics. But I'm still, I, I, I get to mix projects often where people were recording under extremely humble circumstances that I think are awesome. They sound great. They captured the spirit of the music. They need maybe they need a little help from me or somebody like me to to bring them to a place that sounds full and rich. And, um, but you know, I'm, I'm super happy that people have access to this cheap gear so they can record these ideas and these, because otherwise these, you know, these really creative projects wouldn't see light if they had to save up enough money to go into a studio. So, and it does create work for such as myself who a lot of my work has been mixing records that people record in their living rooms And, you know, there, there's a give and take with it. And, um, I just, I, I'm really excited about the home recording thing. Um, and people working that way. I'm excited about hearing records that people that I've, I did their last record and now they did the new one all on their own. They learned enough to just do it on their own. I, that to me, that's not a threat. That's Mm -hmm. like a, that's a, um, I, I don't have that fear of like obsolescence. Um, I think so I, I get excited when somebody does their own, their next record on their own. I'm like, good job because often I've become friends with them over the course of period of, of making a record. So I get, I'm proud of them. I'm I'd see it as pride in my friend that they've now been able to accomplish this thing.
0: Can you talk on the concept or the, the, the topic of territorial engine territorial engineers, engineers that they do a record with somebody and then the band decides they're going to work with somebody else. And that engineer flips out. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think I had to just, get over that
1: really early because that was just going to happen. And it did, of course, you know, and I lost the next record to engineers that were honestly better than me at the time, especially, you know, and I just like, I couldn't lose, lose any sleep over it. I probably did, but I shouldn't have. And I, I, I learned not to soon, you know, you have to have a, a tough skin. I mean, there's so many reasons that somebody could go to somebody else for their next project Sometimes they are personal. Sometimes it just wasn't the right match, personality-wise. Sometimes you couldn't bring it to where they wanted sonically. Um, sometimes you know they just want to change. I don't. I mean, you can't. You, you you know unless you know. I don't know. Even even if you know the reason, you just can't lose too much sleep over it. You know, it's it's such a volatile um, situation, such a volatile business, because you're we're dealing with artists, and we're dealing with with emotions, and we're dealing with people's um you know people can have a an irrational idea of why they think something did or didn't work and you can't constantly analyze that you can't you can't let that affect your own self-worth your 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 feelings about your own self-worth you know because if you do you will go crazy so i just, i just have no place for that in my in my work if somebody goes to somebody else i might be upset for a, for a minute about it or bummed but i cannot let it affect me yeah. know, in the long run you know
0: uh, well it's it's definitely a, a maturity thing, I think too. But it, I'm wondering, like, what are what are things you think that one can do to keep a client interested in staying with you?
1: I think I think my successful relationships with clients that span numbers of records, you know, which I have a few. Um, um, hopefully, anybody who's been doing this as long as I have has a few of those where they got asked back. You know, the, it's because. When I think about it, it's often because they knew that I was willing to experiment and not and willing to and excited about creating new sounds. And and I, I don't, I'm very not set in my ways when it comes to like production style. I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm constantly trying to evolve and learn. And, and I don't feel like I, I don't feel like I hit some like level of like production ability. And I'm going to just ride that out for the rest of my career. I'm like constantly, uh, trying to learn new techniques or new, new ways of doing things, if nothing else, just to keep myself entertained, you know, and hopefully to the betterment of the next project. So I feel like when I've, when I'm in a, in a groove with somebody and they understand that that's what I'm interested in, then they see how the next project could also, you know, work with me because they, they want it right. Most artists don't want to make the same record over and over again. So if the engineer does want to make the same record over and over again, that's a mismatch.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, yet another topic how How over the years have you uh, work life balance, family, recording all those factors uh, battling one another How do you How do you keep the peace?
1: Well, I will say, having moved, it's my wife and I joke about it, but we moved to New York to slow down. We were we lived in the Bay Area for so long and just had such a, you know, the positive side we had a really vibrant community and a ton of friends there and and Mm. removing ourselves from that even though it's coming to a place that theoretically is you know faster paced allowed us to slow down we spend a lot more time together than we did in the bay area i think actually uh, having having the studio in the same building i get to see her a lot more we have lunch together and stuff like that because she works from home so um just for me personally like (laughs) you know i was able to balance it by (laughs) by moving by like actually uprooting and coming to a new place and starting something different. I, I, we were getting a little, it was getting a little, crazy in the barrier because we weren't seeing each other very often because I was pulling really long hours at the studio and she you know it was like I was I was very gone for our last couple of years there and I I feel like I haven't been since we moved here so
0: I'm confused a little bit your're the arrangement of the studio with your living situation so we, I live above it it's so we have an apartment that's uh
1: you know so I, I have to, my commute to work is two flights of stairs.
0: Oh man! Yeah, you might it, as well. You, you might as well have a home studio. I mean,
1: no, 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 no. It's really different. It's really different. It's okay. Yeah, it, that, and that's. I did have. Yeah, it's. It's not a home studio. It's decidedly not. And I'll tell you why. Because a, because there are like five other engineers working out of it. Oh. Okay. And B, it is two flights of stairs and two heavy doors, and I and I can't hear it when there's a session down there and I am when I'm home, I'm home. And I, and you know, I am a little bit on of tech support for the studio because I did all the wiring and I, um, um, all that, but I'm not the, I'm not the studio manager. So when there's a problem, I'm not the first guy that I call. And that's huge. And that's one of the reasons I left the Bay area was because I was that guy at no improve for many years, like on call. Basically, even if I wasn't there, I was there, you know, mentally.
0: So it's good. So if, if you're needed at home in an emergency situation, you just pop upstairs.
1: Exactly. I, I had a fridge delivery yesterday. I had to be upstairs for an hour in the middle of my work day. you know, and it worked. <laughs> that's
0: that's an emergency. Yeah, not, it was. It was the
1: fifth time they tried to deliver the fucking thing. So anyway.
0: Um, well, that's that's very interesting. So as a result, you, your wife, and your son, you spend more time together.
1: Yeah, I, we definitely spend more
0: time together here.
1: and um i'm able to i i i get a, a higher slightly higher hourly wage here than i was in the bay area so that uh-huh. allows allows me to work a little bit less and make a similar amount of money so uh-huh. um and that's just kind of new york supply demand you know economic shit that allows me to charge a little bit more so um and you're not driving to work i'm not driving we don't even own a car so we're saving a ton of money there um we you know walk everywhere we Do all our shopping locally here? uh, The co-op that we belong to. It's, I mean,
0: so the the apartment is owned by the studio owner.
1: Yeah, the whole building is owned by Shazad, so he's he's my landlord, (laughs) and he's not really my boss because I'm freelance. But he, you know, but you know, I couldn't ask for a person I'd rather have in that position than him. He's an incredible person, amazing musician, awesome engineer. Uh, I just can't say enough good things about him he's really you know my association with him has literally changed my life in almost every fashion um so coming here and being a part of this has like just been an incredible experience he you know he's introduced me to the clients that i've had since i've worked here laurie anderson mark rebo um tons of others that i can't even think of at the moment but you know just his associations with people here he's been a working musician in new york for 20 years so he's just deeply rooted in in not the scene here, but like 12 different scenes here. And um, so it's, he's just an incredible person and, and somebody who it's been really, really valuable to be my, my association association with him is incredibly valuable to me.
0: Just about out of time, but I want to ask you um, your, your feelings on, I guess it mainly has to do with your experience with new and improved uh, on studio ownership. Um, I didn't have such a great time at it. I, I, I had, I had a better time at it when my overhead was way lower. Yeah. And I, everything was more manageable. The minute things got a little bit bigger, it just got out of hand.
1: I realized that as I was saying all that stuff about overhead, I, I, I hadn't thought about it beforehand, but you know, I know that you went through that and I, and that must've been really hard. And I, <laughs> <laughs> and like getting, being in that position
0: where you're like, Oh, let shit. me, I'm yeah. going to lay down on the couch and I'm going to tell you about all my problems. Yeah. Right yeah, yeah. Yeah. Are you cool with that?
1: Yeah, totally. I, I, you know, when you were getting into the, entering into that, I, I, Hoped for the best for you. Thank and you.
0: I'm sure. I'm sure everybody was like, "Well, let's see how this one turns out." Well,
1: I really, I thought you had. I definitely thought you had the potential to pull it off. And it's just, you know, the, the city was just in the midst of such a change at that moment, and um, you know, it was. Like, I think you had so much working against you. But anyway, I, you know, the. I'm sorry. You. I think you were asking me a question. No, no, no. About just in terms of you know, what are your feelings about studio ownership? Yeah, um, I'm so much happier right now to be a freelancer. Um, because, you know, even though, like I said, I, I do feel, I have a, such an attachment to this place. I helped build it from the ground up and I, you know, it's where I spend all my time. So if something breaks there, I take it personally and I, and I want it fixed and all that, but there's, there's a different, there's a buffer, you know, there's a buffer. I'm not the owner of it. I'm not the, it is not my thing. And I just, you know, if I, like I'm going to the Bay area for a month, you know, I'll get a few phone calls here and there from people wondering, you know, how I hooked this up or hooked that up, but I can leave. I can just leave. I'm not the, it's not my thing, you know, um, new improved. I still own a quarter of, so it's great to have three quarters of the people who are involved, you know, actually running the thing. Um, there is this kind of thing in the back of my mind always that there's a responsibility there. Um, and the good part of that is I can go out there and and use it, utilize it. And I, I'm, when I'm in that space and I'm so familiar with it, it's so comfortable. I, I own a quarter of the things there, you know what I mean? I have a real comfort level in the ownership there, but man, it's stressful. And that, it is one of the reasons that I left the Bay area was to kind of escape studio ownership, you know, to some degree. I think my, you know, studio partner, John Finkbeiner would probably really felt like that's why I, you know, I was just like fleeing the res- responsibilities of, of, running a studio because it, it got so stressful you know he's probably right to some degree but I, I mean there was a lot of factors but that's one of them was just like okay you know yeah I think I've said it
0: yeah man I one of the happiest moments in my life was January 1st 2012 when I realized okay that's it I'm out I'm done yeah it's it's over and it's and it feels like oh god and now
1: that room is going through more transition right it's... yeah the
0: building's been sold i i believe um everybody's out the it's it's up in the air and uh you know i think john kuna said I, I i think he i can't remember if it was in person or, or or if by um a facebook comment but i don't believe anybody has ever made any money in that in that building or mm-hmm. been truly successful in that building
1: it's such a shame because it's such a awesome space to work you know
0: yeah that that's, building being uh 1340 mission street uh really at its core coast Recorders dating back to bill bill putnam bill putnam uh, uh obtained it from mercury records for those that are listening that don't don't that don't know the history so sorry to speak in code so in code and insider bay area yeah. talk but that's well, that's yeah yeah
1: it was it was a true pleasure working in that room when you were in charge of it and and uh, a lot of that had to do with you and a lot of that had to do with the room itself and it it was it was a shame for me when it when it you know changed and now it's changing again
0: yeah well you know and that that speaks though to the concept that you know if you are going to be a studio owner don't be a dick yeah yeah absolutely because because any studio is truly the personality of the owner yeah and if you're any sense uh, if you have any percentage of asshole in you do not open a studio because it will eventually not work. If there is a
1: positive aspect or positive component of, you know, what's happening in the the big studio world right now of them all closing and having financial troubles. I think the positive, you know, um, kind of upshot of everything is that people have to be nicer. (laughs) They have to be nicer now because it's, there the you know if it's competition thing or if it's just you know there's like it used to be when there were three big studios in town and that's it you know they could be dicks and people would still have to go to them and now it's like you know there's a ton of smaller studios here and there and you know there there's there's more competition in that way so you have to you have to kind of bring it on all levels one of those Mm. being being a a person that people want to, like, deal with. Even if you're not the engineer that, that's in there with them all day, even if you're the studio manager or the owner or whoever or the, you know, guy who mops up, I mean, you just have to, you just have to be friendly, a friendly person that people want to be around or
0: you're, they will go somewhere else. Do you feel, um, well, I, I was going to say, I was going to ask you to, you know, do you feel like these days you have to be in at least somewhat musical hotbed to have a studio of of size or or do you? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, um, you know, they're
1: here there's as in the Bay Area, like, you know, there's the Prairie Suns and the and the places, you know, other places in like Sonoma County or, you know, Tim Green moving to uh, Grass Valley. And, you know, there's a bunch of like kind of places that are just a few hours away from like an, ur- you know, an urban center as there are here. Um, there's a ton of studios upstate and some of them are big and not necessarily even cheap, but they're just like removed from, you know, the, the urban environment. And yeah, they probably own the building. The Like the real estate was probably cheap, obviously compared. It's funny. I'm in my son's room looking at a map of the United States and trying to look at like where, where would a big, I mean, there's that place in Texas that people go, what is it? Sonic ranch or something like that.
0: Oh yeah. Sonic ranch. Yeah. yeah. Outside of El Paso and Las Cruces, New Mexico. And- right.
1: That's like, Way the fuck out there, and people travel there to make records because it's a, it's a I've never been there obviously but it's a, a supposedly an amazing place and a place where you can really go and focus, but it ain't cheap you know yeah Ma-
0: Michael Rosen has been there he he did a record with Tesla there wow, awesome
1: yeah my my friend Pat dillett, who's an, a great engineer here in new york he he did a session there I can't remember I think it was with Brian Eno he's worked with him a few times and he said you know just being out there in the middle of Texas and you're like five miles from the border or something. And there's this element of danger. And like he said, it was like really kind of cool, unique way to work that he'd never experienced before. I'm all for that. I think that getting into getting yourself into those situations is, you know, a few times a year is really valuable for us, you know, get it, get out of our comfort zones, both, you know, in terms of creatively, but also physically, just like get, get yourself out, out of where you know how to do what you do. That will change what, you know, you're, perspective in a way that can only be valuable i think
0: well this has been great eli i think we're about out of time here and uh yeah man it just flies by
1: i know all all that stuff that i planned to say i didn't say it's cool i'll say it in my i'll say it to myself tonight as i go to sleep
0: i'll read your biography
1: (laughs) yeah thanks so much man really appreciate the the opportunity to talk to you
0: well awesome great to see you take care bye Another great interview with Mr. Eli Cruz here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hey, before we go, I want to ask a couple favors. If you haven't done so, head on over to the Facebook page and give us a like or subscribe to us over on Twitter. uh, Or maybe head on over to iTunes and give us a nice review and good rating over there. would appreciate it. And, uh, you know, if if you've done all those things, uh, maybe consider telling uh, another audio friend about the show and have them come on over and check us out. Would be appreciated. Our music is provided by Cliff Truesdell, and our voiceover intro that is Mr. Chuck Smith and Cole Williams. Of course, helps us out with some social media support as well as some additional audio support. So, we have a good team on board, don't we? And then, of course, we want to thank our sponsors Gearsluts.com, Audio Technica. We want to give a warm welcome to Universal Audio and welcome to welcome to the podcast and, and the website. And, of course, as usual, I want to thank you all for listening and taking the time out of your day to listen to me rant. It's definitely appreciated. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about